Three Waters, finally, officially, down the gurgler. I'm pleased to announce that this week we're making significant progress in implementing local water done well. Replaced by local water done well, testament to the received wisdom that politicians suck at naming things. It comes with zero guarantee that rates won't rise under the new plan. Well, what I can guarantee is that this model is a lot is the most efficient way than creating 10 mega co-governed entities with massive centralised bureaucracy around it. And $1.2 billion was wasted down the drain with it. How, how, much, how much has been spent on total? The last government, I think, spent over $1.2 billion um, and didn't actually get, get, get anything in place. In other central and local government news, get the popcorn out for Brown v Brown. Auckland's Mayor Wayne Brown on a collision course and threatening to axe transport projects after Transport Minister Simeon Brown scrapped the regional fuel tax. We want to reduce costs, we'll do less because I'm not going to put it rates just so that they can say that we've saved everybody money. And from leaky pipes to leaky government. News Hub with a cabinet leak showing the government's considering allowing an influx of foreign landlords. The Prime Minister claiming he's unfazed by yet another leak of a top secret cabinet paper. Yeah, we're, I'm not worried about it at all. And Labour, well, it's barely containing its glee. I walk my greyhound twice a day and she has less leaks in this government. Stay classy, Wellington. Kia ora, I'm Tova O'Brien. Welcome to the pod. We've had plenty of coalition governments, but we've never had one quite like this before. Never has a major political party been so beholden to two minor parties, nor have two minor parties ever made that so clear to their major party prime minister. Couple that with ACT skyrocketing in the polls and the Greens promising to overtake Labour and form the first ever Green-led government, it got us to thinking about the rise and rise of minor parties, how they wield power here and overseas, and whether they really could eventually overtake the majors. Georgia Kernell from the University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA, is an expert on elections around the world and she's going to help us work through those questions. And then, given the minor parties can make things so difficult for their major party coalition leaders, also in the week that Three Waters officially went down the drain and that $1.2 billion was wasted, we ask whether a grand coalition of national and Labour would better serve New Zealand and its need for better infrastructure planning among many many other things. Former Ministers Chris Finlayson and Andrew Little tease out that idea with us. This week, a poll dropped that was the stuff of dreams for National and Act, a fantasy parallel universe in which their quote-unquote strong preference for a National Act coalition to govern alone without the third wheel that is Winston Peters and New Zealand First, that dream could come true. Remember, throwback to Luxon's video on the election campaign, finally saying he'd pick up the blower to Winston, but only if he really, 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 really had to. It was prefaced with this. My strong preference is to form a strong and stable two-party coalition government between National and ACT. I believe that government would be in the best interests of New Zealanders at this very uncertain time. The TPU Curia poll, done by the polling company National Users for its internals, showed an almighty sky-high leap for ACT, up 5.6 percentage points to 13.7. That would give ACT a further six MPs on top of the 11 it currently has. Certainly the messages I've been getting, they, they like that we stand for something. 
National was up to 2.6 points to 39.6%, and New Zealand First down 1 to 5%. They'd still be in Parliament, but Christopher Luxon wouldn't need them to form a government. Strong preference. The poll covered the Waitangi period, so clearly David Seymour's treaty principles message is resonating. The PM finally opposed that message, but doesn't think he's got himself offside with the public mood. Uh, you know, the reality is there'll be polls, there'll be lots of polls. Uh, you've seen them already, in, you know, public polls being announced in the last few months as well. Uh, and from my point of view, our position's really clear, so I don't plan to keep rehashing the, the ground that we've covered over the last few weeks. Almost as much as ACT was up, the Greens were down 4.8 points to 9%, probably down to allegations of Galway's Garamund's sticky fingers and James Shaw's resignation. But even though they're down, the new Greens co-leader-in-waiting, Chloe Swarbrick, is promising to over overtake Labour as the force for the left. Mark my words when I say that we are going to build the biggest green movement that any of you have ever seen. Swarbrick wants to lead or co-lead the first ever Greens-led government. I very strongly believe uh, that the Greens are the leading left-wing voice in our parliament. Radical change at this point is necessary uh, to confront the challenges of our time. Tinkering will no longer meet that threshold. And she, of course, has form taking out Labour. Swarbrick defied the odds and beat Labour to win Auckland Central in 2020. They told us this could not be done! paving the way for the Greens to also take Labour strongholds, Wellington Central and Rongatai in 23. Your work has delivered a Green Party campaign that has once again defied history. All this, the Greens declaring war on their larger lefty comrades and act surging into double digits, got us thinking about the ascent of smaller parties, the rise of the minors. Could they ever conceivably overtake the majors? We wanted to look at international examples and see if they could apply here. And to answer those questions and more, we're joined by Georgia Kurnell, Assistant Professor in the Department of Political Science at UCLA. Kia ora, Georgia. Welcome to the pod. Lovely to, lovely to have you on. Thanks for having me. Well, um, I'm keen to break things down a bit, a bit more kind of country by country, taking into account unique democratic and electoral quirks. But uh, at, at a very base level, can it be done? Can minor parties surpass centrist major parties in the polls? Uh, typically not for more than one election. Um, it's, it's very rare. So because there is, um, in a in a situation where you're selecting the prime minister, right? In this case, there's such a strong uh, two-party system in New Zealand. It would be very unlikely for, I think, the Green to surpass uh, Labour, for example, or the ACT Party to surpass the National Party for a long period of time. But they can cannibalize many of the voters and then um, make that party move more to a more extreme position. Is there an example um, or a democracy similar to ours which you'd use as the the kind of a, a test case for New Zealand of where that's happened perhaps or where a, a minor party has surged ahead even if it was for a single election? The places to look would be Japan and Germany. They're the only two countries that have really the same setup as New Zealand and we haven't seen that. So we haven't seen a third outside party take over mm. um, and push out the middle party before. You raised Germany as an example, so the, you know the kind of post-war, uh, post-war, poster child of political stability and centrist party domination, now facing this unprecedented fragmentation. Why is that? Yeah, so I think um, probably the question is why did that grand coalition stay together 
for so, so long. long. That was really the anomaly. We haven't seen that before. Um, and it really was a poster child, like you said. Um, the reason why that probably existed was Germany has such a high threshold for um, parties to get in at 5% that there was never quite as much fragmentation as there as there might have been otherwise. Mm, like us as well. Yeah. So I think, well, I think that then leads to, right, to stronger um, centrist parties. And so um, but I, but having a coalition between the center left and center right has is, is never been um, the norm, and we don't see that in other cases either. It also coincide, coincided in, in Germany with a surge in energy prices, with a recession, um, that the, the country was beset by crises. Do, do you know if crises can play a role in, um, in, in helping minor parties grow more powerful if they perhaps tap into some of that, some of that sentiment? Yeah, so crises just increase uncertainty in the minds of the elite and in the minds of voters. And so when there's greater uncertainty, we're going to see a shuffle in some way or another, right? So voters might change their allegiances. They might not know what their party stood for in the past. And they also, if if certainly if their party or the party they supported was in government at the time of the crisis, they're going to be more likely to blame that party mm-hmm. and shift somewhere else. So if there's two large parties, right, and there's a crisis, there's nowhere to shift. Um, if the crisis is big enough and there's um, somewhat of a viable party on the on the other side or nearby, then a voter might might uh, shift in that direction. It doesn't typically lead to like a complete restructuring of the system. Maybe the party will change its name by incorporating one of the smaller parties, but mm. probably we'll see you know a more static system where we're not seeing total. Um, total party fragmentation and changing in votes over time, you know, for indefinitely. And fear is another interesting one as well. And we've seen it play out in, well, Brexit, um, the election of Donald Trump as well. The Netherlands, I remember covering the the election there back in 2017 and going to the then Prime Minister's election night party, Mark Rutte, and he was so pumped. He was so stoked. And not just because he'd won the election, but because the stakes were so high, because at that point, point Gert Wilders, who was the, um, the far-right leader um, of uh, his party for freedom, there was a real threat um, that he was, well, he was, he was soaring at the polls at the time and his agenda also at the time was this kind of, he was writing this anti, anti-Islam agenda. I think they called him this Dutch Donald Trump. And he took his minor party, which was founded in 2006 from nine seats and then up to 37 seats in, in the last election. So how can fear play a role in making those, accelerating those minor parties into, into popular more popular parties. So one thing to remember is like Netherlands has one of the most permissive systems. So mm. there's only one district, there's 150 seats, and everybody is voting in that same district. There's like 15 parties or something, isn't there? Right. So you lead to more fragmentation because no longer does a party have to have um, a coalition at a um, geog- in a geographical location. It can draw a few people from here, a few people from here, you know, just mm. a few people from all over the country all of a sudden can support somebody and give the... Uh, a party and give them a seat or two or three. And so the Netherlands is different. Um, I want to point out for that reason. And so I'm not surprised, right? It wasn't surprising that we saw the far right surge there, like in, and in a way that had so many more um, seats. As far as can fear play a role? Yeah, I think fear and misinformation together, um, again, breed uncertainty. Mm-hmm. So partisanship and party voting um, becomes much more volatile as well. And what about smaller parties holding perhaps disproportionate 
power. So in Iceland, they have a three-party coalition in government, like we have here, but the prime minister isn't from the biggest party. She's from the second biggest in the coalition, uh, which only got 12.6% of the, the vote. So it would be the equivalent of David Seymour here in New Zealand from the ACT Party being Prime Minister instead of Christopher Luxon from, from the National Party. How rare is that to have a Prime Minister not from the dominant party in a coalition? How rare is it, though, for them to have some power? Disproportionate power, is, it's not rare at all. Mm-hmm. So we um, typically see that. So a party that's in, in the governing coalition has at least one cabinet seat, right? That's how it's defined as being a governing party. And it's rare for them to hold the prime minister, but it's not unseen or mm-hmm. uh, uh, we've certainly heard of that. But that's certainly happened before. Um, but they often will hold, a, especially if they hold a good bargaining chip, the deputy prime minister position or the second mm-hmm. in command or perhaps it's a minister of finance position, but a very top-level position. So often you'll see that small parties do um, get allotted uh, higher a higher share of cabinet seats than um, would be proportional to their mm. and, and also a higher uh, value of that seat. Oh yeah, we yeah. definitely saw that. We've got two co-deputy prime ministers here at New Zealand at the moment, so we've we've seen that um, we've seen that play out. Another very different example, um, born of very different circumstances to any other. Um, but in 2020, Sinn Fein in Ireland surging ahead of the traditionally dominant two parties for the first time in history. And I've got a quote here from the Sinn Fein leader at the time saying, "The two-party system in this country is now broken. It's been sent to the history books." How did that happen in in that instance? Yeah, whenever you hear that quote, you know who it's from, right? It's from the surging third party. Um, <laughs> so in that case, I mean, the two traditionally dominant parties had to um, team up together, right? And so uh, it's a little, it, it depends on sort of w- what the issue is of that third party and whether or not the two parties can um, come together and go against them. So in that case, it worked out well. So in, in Ireland, they did do that the, for the first time ever, wasn't it? The, those two leading parties um, had to form a kind of grand coalition to keep Sinn Féin out after it after it had, had surged. Um, in, in New Zealand, the National Party, which is our biggest party, it formed in the 30s. It was never really a minor party. It was kind of an amalgamation of a, a, a couple of conservative parties and it didn't take long for it to win. Is that another route for, for minor parties that, to become major contenders, to merge with others? Definitely you see that when those minor parties are regionally concentrated too, Mm. because then they can really hold that party hostage by saying, look, we control this region, so you have to incorporate us. So you might say the CSU is always a partner of the CDU in Germany, but it's located in a specific area of Germany, and so it's geographically concentrated. You also saw that in Canada where the two right parties had very different um, geographic concentrations and they formed together, I think it was 2003, they formed together to fight against the Liberal Party. There's a cautionary tale here in New Zealand as, as well. Um, the alliance, which is a kind of bundle of four parties, eventually split because of internal divisions. So there are risks that come with merging a whole bunch of parties as well, aren't there, and, and a whole bunch of different ideologies. Uh-huh. Yeah. What's what's the upshot, do you think, Georgia? What's your assessment? Could minor political parties, just rounding us back up to, to where we started, do you think that any of the minor political parties in New Zealand could use any of the avenues that we've kind of explored to somehow overtake, you know, the Greens on the left, overtake Labour and or act on the right, overtake the National Party? What would they need to do to make it happen? I think that, um, the, so there's two routes of influence. One is through um, changing the policies of their 
um, center left or center right, you know, companion. The other is through actually trying to win the elections. And typically, Green parties have taken the former strategy, right? The parties do have a chance to stay as as major players because of the MMP system. We typically see more than two parties getting a fair amount of support, mm. but I haven't seen a case where one of them has taken over the the main center party. Okay, so I'm sure that National and Labour have been shaking in their boots before, but now they can stand down their anxiety. It's all going to be okay. They will remain <laughs> supreme. Georgia, it was such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for your time and your enormous brain on, um, on squaring away that big issue for us, which has popped up over the course of this year. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so we've just heard it's not going to happen. The miners will not be inheriting the earth. But we do know, and Georgia also just told us it's common in these kinds of arrangements, that the smaller parties do hold disproportionate power. So given what we're seeing from the minor parties here and how they behave in coalition with National, is it time the major parties mounted a joint force to affirm their supremacy? I mean, just look at poor old Christopher Luxon and the criticism he's facing of the tail or tails wagging the dog. For example, you've got Winston Peters appearing to force the Prime Minister to undermine his own police minister over their coalition promise to put cops on the beat. Mark Mitchell said 500 new police over three years. The agreement says it's over two years. And after a quick call from New Zealand First to National, the Prime Minister was throwing his police minister under the bus and Mark Mitchell was eating his hat. Hey, listen, um, no, look, I mean, our commitment is to deliver 500 more police officers in the first two years of this term of parliament. Uh, that remains as it set out in our coalition agreement. I think Mark could have expressed himself better. Mr Speaker, I seek leave to make a personal statement to correct answers given during question time yesterday. I stated that the government's policy was for the 500 additional police to be delivered over the course of the term, which is three years. I should have been clearer. The government's policy is to deliver 500 new police in the first two years of the term. No, there was a mistake in the communication. I'll put it down to that. Not to be outdone, acts David Seymour won up to the New Zealand First power play after Luxon categorically ruled out supporting his treaty principles bill any further than the first reading. Seymour told Stuff and the AM show not only that the Prime Minister had effectively choked, but that he didn't believe him. AKA Seymour doesn't think Luxon's telling the truth, AKA a word you're not really supposed to say in politics, so I won't. I think perhaps he got a bit nervous after Waitangi, um, but ultimately the bit I don't believe is that you know he won't change his mind if the public really want it. Um, you know, all politicians are very mindful of what the public want. So given the Prime Minister's effectively being undermined by his minor party coalition buddies who look like they're running circles around him, and also given the similarities between National and Labour, remember the first debate of the election? You could barely tell the Chris's apart. Look, I, I've, I've been quite public about it. I felt the actual first part of the COVID response was actually very well managed uh, by both Jacinda Ardern and Chris in, in the ministerial capacity. We need to build more houses. We need to build our way out of the housing crisis that we've got at the moment. What we have to do is we have to increase supply and build more houses. Four-year term. Uh, I personally have a lot of appetite for that because I think you throw governments out after four years. Yes, I believe in a four-year term. Well, we are, I think we're reading from the conversation that we are both deeply committed to delivering on our climate goals and commitments. The way in which we go about delivering those will be different. Should transgender people be allowed to compete in sport? 
Uh, that's a decision for the sporting bodies. Decision for the sporting bodies. Okay. Well, look, I really respect Chris for taking on the job of Prime Minister. It's well, first of all, I mean, I, I, I really admire Chris's commitment to his family. And, and I also really admire the way that um, he you know, talked about his family up front when he took on this job. And I respect the way he went about it. And I respect um, the great dad that he is too. I think generally being leader of the opposition is a tough job. Being Prime Minister is a tough job too. <laughs> and so people deserve credit for taking on those roles. So given all that common ground and the headaches that minor coalition parties can cause, is it time for... A Grand Coalition! Joining me now to discuss the prospects and pitfalls, a former Attorney General and a former Justice Minister in the blue corner, Chris Finlayson, in the red, Andrew Little, kia ora korua, thank you very much, Happy New Year. Kia ora. Bit late for that salutation. No, it's not. I'm, I'm actually <laughs> determined to keep using it for the duration of the year to ensure that I finally have a happy one after a torrid one. But that's um, by the by. <laughs> Andrew Little, is this is your first time on the podcast? You can go. You can go first. Do you think that Labor and National should could join forces? Um, no, not not in any sort of big formal sense. The reality is, we've seen over the last you know, ten to fifteen years that on on very big issues, very big crises, things like the Christchurch earthquakes, things like the pandemic, there's a there's a degree of cooperation, but not collaboration. But the reality is in politics, particularly between the big parties, you do need some tension, and you need some difference. You know, there should be um, differences of view and differences of opinion that are expressed, and it's important that the the, the two big parties represent that as well. And and. Chris, you're a friend of the pod. Thank you very much for coming back on. You're also a font of knowledge about world politics, political history. We've had grand coalitions here before and, and areas of consensus, as Andrew points out, but we've had grand coalitions a couple of times during the Great Depression and before World War One. Where else has it happened in the world and what happened? Has it ever worked? Well, Sid Holland agreed to go into a wartime coalition and I think, Andrew, it lasted about five minutes before he got hit <laughs> and walked out again. Um, the only, the best example I can think of is Germany, where under Angela Merkel, the great Social Democratic Party agreed to share power with her and her Christian Democrats, and it was devastating for the SDP. I mean, the SDP is a party that has contributed hugely to Germany with Willy Brandt and Helmut Schmidt, who was a great uh, Chancellor, and Gerhard Schroeder. But it's a shadow of its former self. And I think the problem for it really was that it entered into a coalition with the CDU. So I agree with Andrew. I think it's always good for the great social democratic tradition and, if you like, the liberal conservative tradition uh, never to go into a grand coalition to cooperate uh, where necessary. And, of course, there is a great overlap. But that tension between the two big beasts in politics is very important. Doesn't that tension still exist, though, with the minor parties who'd then presumably be playing that opposition role? And, and as we know from the minor parties here in New Zealand, they're actually pretty darn good at it. Oh, yeah, but it's a different sort of situation. You always need, even an MMP, uh, one of the the. It, it, it sounds pompous, one of the great political parties to be the cornerstone of a government and the the gadfly parties can uh, contribute from time to time but they don't provide the solidity that a national-led government or a Labour-led government provides. And, and, I, and, I, th and I think too they, those 
you know, we call them third parties, but whatever. In an MMP environment, they do allow a, a greater breadth of kind of representation and voices, mm. um, and they can say things knowing that they will never be responsible for leading a government. And that's, you know, that's not unhelpful, but um, in the end, you know, government requires considerable more pragmatism and compromise than is allowed for by parties representing, well, I hate to say extreme views, but certainly much more... Fringe is the um, nice word for uh, extreme. further down the political spectrum. Yeah, yeah. Fringe, fringe is the, um, the the kind of euphemistic word we use for extreme, I think. Um, looking at all the wasted money, though, that we've... And I think this week was the perfect example, wasn't it, with three waters and the $1.2 billion um, sunk cost uh, with the, the repeal and, and, you know, I think Labour and National are both sharing the blame on, on that one. But the, the sunk cost on so many of these big infrastructure projects in particular, do you not think, Andrew, that a, a grand coalition could help solve some of those long-term lack of consensus issues? Yeah, I think there's something else going on here. I mean, the reality is in a, a liberal democracy like ours, the two big parties ought to be able to, even during you know, over a change of government, commit to the long-term decisions that need to be made and infrastructure decisions. and that. So I think yeah, it is disappointing to see what has happened. But I think that reflects some strands that emerged in last year's election and, and predated it, you know, things like after the pandemic, you had the occupation of parliament. There was a lot of imported sort of political extremism that sort of infected our politics. Um, it led to New Zealand First pitching itself to a bunch of voters who were so disaffected um, and had no respect for, you know, uh, you might say the establishment politics. That's what they've got, and that's now reflected in the coalition agreements. And part of that, part of the, the sort of more polarised politics that we've got now that we seem to have imported, particularly from the US, is now being reflected in this completely trashing the signature sort of policies that were implemented, started to be implemented <clears throat> by the previous government. But they were always long-term plans. Um, but that seems to be the politics of the age. Sadly. Well, it's, it's actually, it's a very good point you make, but it's actually, it goes back many years. Probably the worst policy decision in my lifetime was the decision by the Robert Muldoon government to ditch the Roger Douglas superannuation scheme uh, and come up with a scheme that was actually far more socialistic. And it has been very harmful for the New Zealand economy. So I think that Andrew makes a very good point. On the other hand, I do think that Bill English's social investment uh, program laser focused on the, the, the needs of the individual, which was ditched by Labour in 2017, was something of a disappointment. But putting aside partisan politics, the principle that Andrew has mentioned is absolutely spot on for some of these large projects and large pieces of law reform, and it behoves both government and opposition, uh, both the big parties, to be sensible. You do need buy-in, otherwise, as you say, Tova, a huge wasted effort and shocking wasted costs. And back to your point as well about um, Winston Peters, Andrew, I mean, you have felt the full force of Winston Peters undermining a decision that you made as a minister when he suddenly pulled support for appealing three strikes. Would a grand coalition, would it alleviate that kind of political chicanery, do you think? I think, I mean, that the, the conduct there was more that he, he committed to me one point and then he turned up to his caucus and found that they didn't support it, so he completely backed out of it. So I think the reality is about the National Party and the Labour Party in government are pretty principled 
and take a view about you know, stability of government is important. So that wouldn't happen. But I think, um, like Three Strikes, the National Party, I think was a um, a grudging supporter of it because it was always a policy of the ACT Party under the John Key government. But they have sort of come full circle and support. I think their support is more expedient. So I'm not sure a grand coalition necessarily kind of fixes that particular problem. In the end, I think what this comes down to is you want standards of conduct of the way politicians act uh, that ensures some consistency and certainty. If you're saying that Labour and National are principled and that kind of thing wouldn't wouldn't happen, are you saying that the minor parties aren't so principled? Oh, no, I think the, the Green Party is so principled. <laughs> um, but I think uh, I think New Zealand First, New Zealand First represents nothing but expediency. They will go full circle. You look at Winston Peters in the 1990s and what he advocated for and what he articulated in terms of Māori development. It is completely 180 degrees opposite to what he is saying now. Yeah, and I'm kind of, uh, to his credit, he can kind of celebrate that while in the same breath kind of undermining it on the pie as well, it, it seems. Chris, do you, do you agree with that, that New Zealand First is, it represents nothing but expediency? And do you think that of any other minor parties? No, the New Zealand First Party um, is an, an interesting mixture of people. Basically, I would say they represent a lot of old-time conservatives who don't like the future, fear the future, <laughs> um, dwell on a past, often a past that never was and never could be, and um, don't like the change that's... Uh, that's sweeping over New Zealand, and um, whereas I guess I have a completely different view. I don't worry about change because change is good, and change represents life. <laughs> Far more generous assessment then, perhaps than um, than Andrew Little's. <laughs> um, we've been talking as well on this this episode of the pod just finally before you guys go about whether the minor parties in New Zealand could ever overtake the majors. Do you think that could ever happen, either of you? No, I don't. I think that. Um, you know, the National Party after 2020, after an appalling period in opposition from 2017 to 2020, got a good swift kick, but it bounced back. Um, Labour's, uh, over the course of its life, uh, has been kicked and it's always bounced back. Uh, it's a great political party and it will see better times again. Uh, and so uh, I think it's all part of that, you know, that tradition uh, of New Zealand politics that you may be down one up one minute but you're up the next mm. and, um, mm. and so I fully expect that Labour in due course will uh, come back again and come back again and serve the country as it has in years gone by. Andrew? Yeah, I think I think the, the two major parties represent a, a breadth of the political spectrum that the smaller parties don't and don't appear to be interested in doing and that's it. You know, you look at you look overseas. You look at India. Um, the BJP um, fifteen years ago, they were almost a fringe party. I mean, they were strong in some states, but they were almost a fringe party. They've been running government now, about to successfully get a third term, and the Congress Party is struggling to to maintain its sort of traction and credibility. So, look, I, we should always look around the world. I think New Zealand's political traditions mean that. The big parties will fluctuate in their fortunes, but I don't see the smaller parties overtaking either of them. Yeah, I think the Greens are dreaming if they think that they'll ever overtake Labour. 
Mind you, I think the Greens dream most of the time. And if the Greens use their, their common sense and were more of an ecology party, they would be in government 75% of the time. I think um, you have both defied your own assertions and proven what a grand, grand coalition National and Labour could be. Um, thank you so much, Chris Finlayson and Andrew Little, for coming on the pod. Thank you very much. Cheers, David. Regular listeners will know that at this point we normally talk to giant political brains and senior staff journos Andrea Vance and Luke Malpass. We've got Luke back with us next week. But Andrea, who is on a top-secret, mystery, magical, exceptional assignment, is joining us now. Andrea, how are you and where are you, more importantly? I am so good because I am in Antarctica! <laughs> Sorry if I just broke all your microphones and speakers, but um, I'm so excited. It's the most amazing trip. So I'm down here with Heritage Expeditions, which is an incredible Christchurch company who does expedition cruises all around the world. And one of the special journeys that they do is a month-long trip down to Antarctica. Ah! So we've been sailing for just over a week. We stopped off in a couple of the sub-Antarctic islands. Macquarie and the Auckland Islands on the way down and a couple of days ago we passed over the Antarctic Circle and yesterday we um, arrived, sailed in during the night into the Ross Sea which is just oh my an God. amazingly special place. So I'm going to be doing a lot of reporting about Antarctic issues. I've been writing about Antarctica for well over a decade and this is actually the first time that I have got to see it and um, oh. one of the things that I reported on for a long time was the failed attempts and then eventually the successful attempt to get the Ross Sea uh, Marine Protected Area, which was an international effort, the biggest in the world at the time. And and now I'm able to see why. And it's just, I can't even tell, I just hard for me even to describe. Uh, like we saw orca, minke whale, two different types of penguins, uh, skewer, and it's just every every time you look out the window, a little iceberg goes past with a flipping penguin sitting on it. It's, oh, <laughs> it's my. just incredible. You're never going to want to sleep or close your eyes or look away. Well, this is the problem because it's um tw it's now we're in 24 hour daylight, so there is no nighttime. <gasps> oh, of course. So we have people roaming the decks like all hours of the night because it just every time you blink, there's a new thing to see. It's just a magical wonderland and it's just like it is the trip of a lifetime it's so special and for people who love wildlife like me it's just all the synapses in my brain have, have blown at this point <laughs> oh that just makes me so happy to hear and you've worked so hard and done such incredible reporting on it as well that you know no no one deserves to be there and sharing with all of us when you get back and and while you're there as well um the things that we need to know from there so thank you in advance for the work I can't wait to read and watch and listen and know everything that that you've learned over there Andrea what what are you focusing on first well I'm really you can't write about Antarctica without writing about the politics, obviously, which is the thing that drew, drew me to it the most, obviously. And conservation is very political, and there are ongoing efforts to do what they did with the Ross Sea. So it was a joint New Zealand-US initiative to bring the Ross Sea MPA to life. And they're trying to recreate it in other parts of the continent. So over in the Weddell Sea on the other side of the of the Antarctic Peninsula, Um it's just really difficult to do because um, the treaty system is based on a consensus basis. So everyone who's a member gets a say. And there are some countries who want to protect it. And they're all about the science and conservation and keeping this a pristine area. There are other countries who feel that it's time to explore the resources. And 
Sometimes that's disguised as scientific efforts. Other times it's more naked. So people, lots of countries are expanding in. There's lots more bases being built. Um, so there's the geopolitics of it. There's the climate science as well, which most people will be familiar with, the melting ice mm. and all the other science that goes on down here. And and there are really big questions about whether we're doing enough, whether there's enough money that's going into science, whether we're doing enough science, whether we're doing the right kind of science. And then... There's just the general experience of being here and what's what it's like and the, the ongoing efforts to preserve it, both the wildlife and the huts. There's lots of historic huts from the heroic age when this was all discovered. So um, Incredible. Yeah, and then there's the adventure. We've had an amazing adventure. We got frozen in yeah, yesterday. So the ice, ice freezes really quickly. So we steamed through the bay in the early hours of the morning, got there and it was absolutely fine. And then at around lunchtime, we turned to come back out of the bay and we were frozen in. So <gasps> it was like just such a so kind of slightly terrifying because like, how do we get out of this? But of course, we're with really experienced mariners. We've got a Polish captain, Jacek, who I don't know if you've ever driven in a really really big rainstorm and you know the level mm. of concentration that you ha if you're on a motorway in heavy rain that you kind of feel exhausted when you stop I must I imagine he must have been feeling like that last night because we had to go through kilometers of pack ice and the ship kind of breaks it up and crunches through it and it's the most sensational experience and all the while what does it sound like the sound is incredible so it's like a crack and a crunch when you hit these giant slabs of ice and then this there's like a as it all kind of breaks down it's like it's like almost if you can imagine passing through a slushy a giant slushy and the colors are amazing because the water is dark black and then you've got the wow. white snow on top but then there's blue of the old ice like newly exposed so that's this most incredible blue and then every now and again you see penguins dotted everywhere and and then there's a yellow light that in at the end of the day and it's just it's absolutely spectacular and if you're really lucky like we were you get to see the occasional pod of whale we saw some calf orca calves yesterday which was like, ah! yeah sorry i'm going on a bit but it really no, is no i want you to i could listen adventure. to this all day it's like, like you're taking me there i can i can picture it but wow andrea it's, I'm, and i'm glad that there is someone with such um who is such an evocative speaker and writer as you are to, to bring those stories back for us as well. I cannot, cannot wait to read um, read what you've written over there. Can I ask a facile question? <laughs> you never ask facile questions. What are you saying? <laughs> <laughs> what about like eating and sleeping and stuff in the daylight? I'm watching True Detective at the moment, so it's kind of the opposite. Oh, um, so good. 24-hour night time. <laughs> it's so good. So scary. Um, but so do, are you fully eye-masked and, and what's the food? Is it normal food or are you? The food is incredible because it's a, it's a, you know, it's a high-end expedition cruise so the like three meals a day i have to say i've been skipping lunch because the food is so is good, good? <laughs> i cannot eat like that every day the cocktails are sensational and you really want a nice cocktail at the end of the day to, to unwind because you're so excited oh my god i love this the, the food is next level <laughs> but i did find yesterday so like when we woke up yesterday it was minus four and um i did find yesterday that i was starving so your body is like working overtime to overtime. compensate and keep you warm so i, I had you know I had, I had a big feed i had venison uh, ragu last night so it's just fully chowing down it's it really good but yeah well, you wear a, like you wear a lot of layers like heaps of layers they give us special polar jackets and then i've got like a balaclava which is fun for someone from northern ireland um and a neck snood <laughs> And hat, and then like uh, you really need eyeglasses because it's so blindingly white, and like special insulated uh, rubber boots because your feet get wet. Gloves, 
my fingers got really cold because I'm constantly taking my glove off to take photos. But yeah, like just so many clothes. And then you come back on the ship and it's nice and toasty warm. So everyone's like going from freezing to sweating. But yesterday <laughs> was so exciting that everyone was out on deck for the whole afternoon and everyone was freezing. But you just don't want to leave because it's just so exciting. Oh, I hope you do get some sleep because I also imagine that if it's 25 hours, 24 hours a day, I'll just add an extra hour, um, daylight, you could go slightly bonkers if you stayed out there the whole time and wired yourself <laughs> to keep looking up at, um, for humpback whales. Um, I know you're completely fully immersed in that and now I am too, which is marvellous. But before we let you go, are there any big political stories here in New Zealand this year, because the first time we've talked to you this year, um, that you're going to be looking out for, big themes for, for this government, for, for the parliament? Yeah, I mean, it's always the economy, stupid, right? Like, we're always thinking about mm. the economy. So I think that that goes without saying that the biggest focus of the year is is how National's going to um, fix the economy. But I think that the big issue is going to be infrastructure. And obviously, we've been talking a lot about Three Waters and the eventual replacement. I think the infrastructure deficit is, is like, it's not just Antarctic daylight that's keeping me awake. That does really worry me about the, mm. the the chronic underinvestment and how we're going to pay for that. Who's going to pay for it? Is it going to be future generations? And those conversations that we have to have, particularly around climate resilience and that kind of thing. So I think infrastructure mixed with the economy is, is the big subject for the year. Here, here. Um, could not agree more, Andrea. Thank you so much. Enjoy every moment. You deserve it. And yeah, like I said, cannot cannot wait to read your stuff. Thank you so much. Shall I bring you back a penguin, Tova? Yes. Oh, and a polar bear. <gasps> no, 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 no. We don't have polar bears down here. Oh, I wish. All it. right. You take care. I'll talk to you next week. You too, hun. Thank you so much. That was Andrea Vance, who is, of course, National Affairs Editor for The Post and Sunday Star Times. If you've travelled to Sydney recently, or any other major city in the world for that matter, you'll have likely been struck by how, how, what's the word, how, well, just how functioning it is. It just works. It operates. It goes. It's a city that does what a city is meant to do. It's cities. Trams, buses, roads, ferries, cycleways, they work. Heck, you can even use PayWave everywhere, including on public transport. And get this, not pay extra. A quick Google reveals that Sydney too has had its share of infrastructure and public transport failures and its pipes are fallible as well, at one point spurting out 16 million litres of raw sewage. So it's all relative. But gadzooks, what on earth is going on with New Zealand's infrastructure? Our train tracks effectively buckle when it gets hot, our pipes don't funnel water, they leak it, the ferry upgrade was a total blowout and sometimes our ferries just break down in the middle of the Cook Strait, putting hundreds of lives at risk. Parts of our roading network are so potholed, there's more hole than road, that is also a safety issue. And it all comes at a cost. Not only the cost of not having the thing we're supposed to have, like functioning trains, those 100,000 Kiwi-built homes, or safe roads and drinking water, but it's also an almighty wallop to our wallets as well. Our wallets. Taxpayer cash wasted. Consider the death of Auckland Light Rail with the sunk cost to the taxpayer of $228 million. The Auckland Cycle Bridge killed just three months after its inception, wasting $51 million taxpayer dollars. And just this week, repealing three waters, sending an incredible $1.2 billion down the gurgler. Add to all this the impact of more severe weather events. This week we're marking the one-year anniversary of Cyclone Gabrielle. 
Hundreds of billions of dollars will need to be spent over decades to start climate-proofing our communities to ensure we don't see the same devastating scale of damage we did a year ago. The storms will come again, harder, faster and more often. The country's infrastructure deficit is more than $200 billion and until there's greater political cooperation and consensus, we're going to continue wasting billions of dollars in the process. Billions of dollars we can't afford. Last year during the election campaign, I moderated the Great Infrastructure Debate. Representatives from five political parties thrashing it out, scrapping over infrastructure. Or at least that's how it was assumed it would go, but instead... The debate was a surprising display of cross-party political consensus, including agreement on the need for greater cross-party political consensus on infrastructure. Infrastructure is not sexy, but if you drink water, flush your loo, have ever been in hospital, drive, get stuck in traffic, catch buses, ride a bike, pay rates, have kids at school, turn the lights or kettle on, etc, 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 then you should care. The upshot is, if politicians could set politics aside treat the taxes we pay with a bit more respect and work together to address the omni-shambles that is our infrastructure crisis, Kiwis wouldn't just thank them for being able to rely on the train service in the morning. We might even look less longingly at Sydney with a bit less shame at the state of things back home. That's my take and also a very smooth segue into our feedback section with producer Chris. Hey, Chris. Hello. Hello. How are you? Good. Good. How are you going? Good, thank you. I say smooth segue because a lot of the feedback that we had this week is related to infrastructure. It is indeed. Oh, I'm not following the script. No, Have not. you recovered from Waitangi? <laughs> I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> I have recovered from Waitangi, kind of. What an amazing week we had up there. It was absolutely amazing. Now, if you've not listened to the pod last week, why not? It's uh, It was such a brilliant experience yeah. as a human and as a journal that spends most of his time behind a desk these days. I'll share something about Chris. There's sensor lights here in the studio, and sometimes if I go away to do something, as I did today... Because he sits in here for so long, studiously working away, so st st still as a statue, the studio lights just turn <laughs> off around him and he doesn't bother to move and turn them back on again. It's, it's a sad little insight. Yeah, well, yeah. I've recovered from Waitangi, but I've not recovered from you using the word gadzooks. Oh, yeah. That looks one of my favourites. Well, thank you. I um, Thank you for picking up on that because I did Google blimey synonyms when I was writing my piece and that's where I'd never used it before. Mm. I got told off by my mum when I was little for saying blimey because the etymological thing... Mm. That's good. Yeah. Where it came from. Well, it's... it's Go blimey, God blind me. Ah, uh, oh. Yeah, I don't know why that was don't bad. Don't that. Yeah. We taught my um, two-year-old nephew when he was first starting to learn words, we taught him how to say blimey. So cute. <laughs> blimey. <laughs> Tiny didn't, he could say, could say apricots badly or cutely and blimey. People should email in with which words their young friends and relatives can't <laughs> say. <laughs> well, he also, um, he used to say, Obliques instead of olives. Aww. And because it was so cute, no one ever corrected him. So olives were just obliques. My darling child, Isabel, 
instead of jacket, she said jack shit. <laughs> She's 28. <laughs> She's not. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> that's so good. And from now on, they're always called jack shits. Mm. Okay, so mailbag. Mail- oh, sorry, that's what I was there for. <laughs> <laughs> you had one job. Uh, I'll preface this by noting that a lot of your reporting on the pod and in print splits opinion. Mm-hmm presumably along party lines. But your analysis this week of the shameful record that New Zealand has on major infrastructure planning, which we've heard so much about in the pod already, has pretty much united listeners and readers alike. Hmm, um, was the great unifier, was it? Infrastructure. Hell, they're not going to take it anymore. Good. Jason was pleased that you articulated what he believes most New Zealanders feel about, quote, the state of our core infrastructure and the petty point scoring we see in the behaviour and soundbites from our politicians. He continues, effective infrastructure management requires longer-term plans and commitments than the election cycle timeframe, which seems to dominate the decision-making of our politicians. And he wants warring factions to rise above point scoring to avert a looming national crisis. Here, here, Jason. Imagine if the politicians from two major parties could just sit down like a bunch of grown-ups, harness the vast power of the government bureaucracy with a joint mission and agreed means of how to tackle the water crisis, for one thing, but, you know, all other, the the broader infrastructure crisis and infrastructure deficit, then we wouldn't just be $1.2 billion in the case of Three Waters being repealed. We wouldn't be in this wet, hot mess Mm. to begin with. I stole that from an opinion piece, an analysis piece I wrote earlier in the week. As long as it's one that you wrote, that's (laughs) okay. I plagiarised myself (laughs) for the pod. (laughs) Stole my own homework. We also heard from Graham. He is a registered mechanical engineer with fond memories of the Ministry of Works, which I think that closed down in the mid-80s, about a decade before I got to Aotearoa. Something to be said about it, though. Yeah, he says, while the Ministry didn't always get things 100% correct, they did build buildings that stood the test of time. Graham says he's not aligned to any party and finds today's politicians make decisions around what looks good on social media, their CVs and their personal agendas rather than nuts and bolts. New Zealanders, he says, need a mindset change. People want cheaper electricity but don't want a wind turbine Mm. on a hill where they can see them. We all want safer roads and complain endlessly about being delayed by roadworks and the list goes on. Mm, we're, um, we're hamstrung by our nimbyism, perhaps. So thank you very much, Graham. I love yeah, I love that point about mindset change. We really do. I think investment and consensus as well. I can't harp on about that enough. Rem- don't remember when National and Labour came out and it was quite a big scene. They walked out into the, the Beehive Theatre and announced that they were going to do a, like, joint rules around um, intensification, housing intensification, mm, those mid-level. Yeah, yeah. And everyone was like, this is good. Okay, so we're finally getting some headway. We're going to build some more houses. And some of the mayors kicked off, I think, including the Auckland mayor and low national backtracks. Yeah. Um, way way after that. It wasn't, it wasn't immediately, but backtracked <clears throat> after that. And so just, um, yeah, imagine there've got to be better ways to ensure that we get some bill consensus and also bring the councils on board, bring the people on board that you need to to get to that point. We should be running the show, Chris. I know. Well, imagine. <laughs> <laughs> no, barely get a podcast out in the <laughs> afternoon. Um, you compared New Zealand's infrastructure record with Australia, specifically Sydney's, as we heard. Mm. Mark says God, that I love we Sydney. need more... Do you? Really? I just went there for five days and it was 
dreamy. Mm, it is a cool place. And it mostly just like mostly I, the, the galleries, the food, the music. That was all great. Yeah. But using my pay wave yeah, on, on the, the bus, bus it yeah. drives me insane. Likewise on the tube in London. Why 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 can't we do that here? Why do I need a different snapper and whatever card and AT card? Why do I need different cards for every city I going to climb down off the soapbox because I can go and That's another reason why you should be running the show. Continue with Mark's email, please. I apologise. Okay, yes. He says we need more swagger like the Aussie cricketers. Mm -hmm. Quote, we are so busy in this country trying not to offend or consulting that nothing gets done or it's done by committee. The hydro dams, Mark says, were built a generation ago by people who asked, what can we achieve? And then got on with it. Mm. Same as most of our road bridges. Imagine, he says, building the Haast Highway through Virgin Southwestland Rainforest mm. now. It's now a tourist mecca and thankfully got built when this country had some balls. That's your answer. <laughs> and no, it's not PC. <laughs> Yes, go Mark, yes, go the Haas Past and go the Clutha Dam, two of the most magnificent examples of southern infrastructure. I spent my Christmas in Clyde and I always go and worship at the altar of the Clyde Dam and then I did a roadie with my mum up the stunning west coast. Mm. So I rate this. I'm not necessarily advocating for what bulldozing all of our um, first growth virgin forest to make way for new roads, but I definitely think we need to muscle in and, and dare I say it, Think big. When I first got to news, I know you've we spend so long in this room together. This won't be a surprise to you, but I can be quite contrary. Never experienced <laughs> that. <laughs> Never yet experienced that. I mean, I have experienced it, or I haven't. I don't know. Um, and I used to say that the North Island or North Island was better than the South Island, but I've I've come to realise now that I was just being awkward for the sake of it and. Tiwa Panamu is where it's at. The vastly superior island. Mm, I think so. Big call. Oh, yeah. I'm a, a very proud southern girl. Part of me is, half of me is. But I, I, I've grown up on the North Island and I, God, I love it here. I love it there. Central, oh, I can't do this. Good. I can't it's do all this. Good. It's all good. Um, let us know your thoughts on anything that we've talked about on the on the pod, whether you think the North Island or the South Island is better, how governments should, um, should or could solve this infrastructure crisis, should they form these grand coalitions that we've been talking about. And... Whether what, I should get out of this room more. And also whether, what was it? Kids' first words. Oh, kids' first words. Yeah. Uh, words they can't say properly. Well, yeah, all, all of the important things. And I also want to say a big thank you as well to my friends who got me thinking properly about the prospect of a grand coalition. This was just after the election last year. I won't name and shame them, but I got a message from them on a Sunday morning while they were watching Q&A with Jack Tame. And they were musing about a grand coalition and said, quote, it seems absurd that the two largest parties who seem more aligned than anyone would choose to go with more peripheral parties with fringe narratives that bend the narrative and destabilise our future. Would f***ing love it if National and Labour would agree on a 30-year strategy on our key portfolios and then ensure we're governing well and managing through the disruptions and crises that will no doubt occur and threaten the delivery of the strategy. Mm. So thank you very much to, the, to those friends. And, and just, that's why I love my friends so much because those are the kinds of messages I get on a Sunday morning before I've even had my second cup of coffee. Um, and also a massive shout out to Chloe as well, who is our resident number one podcast fan here at Stuff. Thank you very 
very much for listening. Even if, Chloe, I suspect you may like Simon Bridges' podcast more than you like ours, but um, that's neither here nor there. Thank you very much. Get in touch if you want, tova at stuff.co.nz. You've been listening to Tova, hosted and produced by me, Tova O'Brien. Follow us on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to get the latest episode automatically and keep an eye on your feed as well for bonus shortcasts. You can also listen at stuff.co.nz forward slash Tova. Thank you very much to audio editor extraordinaire Connor Scott, producer Aaron Darman and executive producer Chris Reed. Most of all, thank you very much for listening. A week is a long time in politics. Anything could happen. Maybe even a grand coalition. Probably not. We got you. Kakite. If you like this podcast, please support our work. Visit stuff.co.nz/support.